The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Just a reminder, we desire to do everything we can to help you become men and women of the Word. So we provide free every single month uh, booklets that look like this. One is called The Daily Walk, which will take you through the Bible of the year. Closer Walk takes you to the New Testament of the year. Daily Bread gives you a devotional every day of the year. Those are available free of charge in the hallway. Just pick them up and utilize them in your own personal walk with God. Our desire is to be changed by the Word of God so our hearts will become like our Savior, so we might represent our Savior wherever we are and whatever we do. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6. Somebody asked me, have you recovered yet? And meaning uh, from going overseas and coming back. And I said, I mean, I recovered from that. But yesterday I kept five grand boys all day. And uh, I need about six weeks to recover from that, I think. So uh, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And if you look at the end of verse three, this is where the trouble begins. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Father, we have worshiped in song. We've enjoyed the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in the hallways. Now we come to you asking you to teach us from your word. Father, we desire to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves, but to see the word and then to apply it to our hearts. So we ask in the name of Jesus that you would do that in his name. Amen. You know, there's some stories in the scriptures that uh, kind of roll off your tongue and uh, they come almost without putting much thought into them because they're so familiar to us. And in Daniel chapter six, we have one of those. In fact, there are a number of those in the scriptures. For instance, if I said Noah's, you would fill in the blank with what? Ark. I mean, it's pretty simple. Isn't it? David and a couple of you said Bathsheba. Uh, we work with you on that. Uh, David and Goliath. Jonah was swallowed by a whale, but it actually says a big fish. Doesn't specifically say whale, even though there's a Hebrew word for that. And if we said Daniel, we say Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, it's probably the most familiar passage in the entire book of Daniel. Every kid that ever attended Sunday school loved hearing about Daniel surviving a night with the lions. I remember when I was a little kid. Actually, I was never little. I was a uh, younger, smaller version of what you see here, uh, chubby, bald, and uh, six years old. But I became fascinated with lions. I mean, to this day, I love to watch the Big Cat Week on either National Geographic or Discovery Channel. Whenever it comes along, uh, I love to YouTube uh, lion stalking prey. I was going to play some of that for you, but uh, just before lunchtime, some of you might not like that. And uh, even when we were in Africa a couple of years ago, uh, we, had the, we went on a little photo safari and uh, we could actually reach out and pet that. We didn't, but you could pet that lion that walked within inches of the car that we were in and then went to this next one in front of us. And so uh, I, these lions are actually interesting beasts. And if you study them, you know all about them. This story about Daniel and the lion's den is so familiar. I thought, I don't have Mark to do real cool artwork like Dave Tate did last week. He had all these cool pictures that Mark had hand-drawn. So I need to come up with something that will uh, relate the story of Daniel perhaps to you in a little different way. So uh, I found this rather sophisticated video that will take us through the whole study of chapter 6 in 30 seconds. So um, here it is. 
Daniel. Okay, we can go to brunch. It's done. I mean, that's a story, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty serious. We only had one person leave. Gary, you mind, Gary Meyer, you're over there. You mind closing that door? Since they left, they didn't like the video. They took off, so we'll let him go. Uh, but, but here's the reality. The question before us is why? I mean, the Holy Spirit of God has many episodes in Daniel's life. Why is this one given to us? I mean, why did the Holy Spirit give us the inspiring, errant word, inerrant word, and give us this story? Why is it there? I mean, why is it recorded for us? There are many things I'm sure that Daniel did in his lifetime, but we have just uh, six chapters of his biographical information, including that as this. So why is that? Why, what would be taught to succeeding generations of Jewish people when they returned from exile? See, the exile is almost over. They're within 10 years of going back to the land. What would they learn from this story? And now for centuries, what would we learn from this story? When we read Daniel 6, and we look at the story of Daniel and the lion's den, I think the question we have to ask is, what does it teach us? Well, in the very first study that we did, I mentioned to you that even though the book of Daniel mentions Daniel, is written by Daniel, and is about Daniel, really it's a story about Daniel's God, the entire book. It's not so much a story about Daniel as it is a story about Daniel's God. And we're going to see that in chapter 6. You know, the interesting thing about chapter 6 is certainly a story about Daniel's God, but one of the things that's quite interesting in chapter 6, Daniel's faith plays a huge role in this as well. So this is a story about Daniel's faith. I say, Gary, how do you know that? I know that because it's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. When I say Hebrews 11, in your mind, if you're thinking with me, you're thinking, well, Cooperstown has the Baseball Hall of Fame, and Canton has the Football Hall of Fame, and Cleveland has the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Oklahoma City has the Cowboy Hall of Fame, and... I don't think Temple has a hall of fame, but we're here. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is God's hall of fame. You might say it's God's hall of faith. Because over and over in that chapter, it says by faith, by faith, by faith. And one of the things included there was by faith, he closed the mouths of lions. So what did these generations learn before, before our time and since our time and now? I think what they're learning and why this story is included is because it teaches our all-powerful God can help us in any situation in life. If it's to overcome sin or overcome a situation, our all-powerful God can do that. So let's look at the particulars. It's a, it's a story you're familiar with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the story itself, but rather get to some conclusions real quickly. The setting is found in verses 1 through 3. Actually, the setting begins in the two previous verses in the previous chapter, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 5. It says there that same night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Well, we read that. We don't know an awful lot about that. Dave Tate shared a little bit with last week about that. So here's what happens. Daniel's one of the young men who's exiled to Babylon. Under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is the king who reigns when David is there, or when Daniel is there, I'm sorry. And uh, eventually, the next king or king down the line is Belshazzar that we re- heard about last week. 
Uh, Belshazzar is, is a guy who he, he's telling his folks, even though we've lost a major battle out in the battlefield, we're safe because we're behind the walls of our city. We're safe behind the walls of our city. We've got plenty of food. We've got plenty of protection, so we're okay. But what he didn't know is that the Medes and Persians led by Darius, the guy I've mentioned here, what he didn't know is while they were inside in a drunken orgy, that Darius and his army were putting up a dam that would allow them to infiltrate their city on a dry riverbed. And so while they're inside partying, the army of the Medes and Persians is outside damming up the Euphrates so that they could come through the city on the riverbed. And so that night they come in, and as you see, Belshazzar is killed, the Medes and Persians rule. So the setting is this. There's a new king in the land. There's a new culture taking over the land. The new king is Darius. He comes in and he leads the Medo-Persian empire. The Babylonians are set aside. So whenever you take over an empire, you have to put your government in. So he recognizes he can't be everywhere. So he appoints 120 satraps over his kingdom. Now, we don't have satraps today, but we do have representatives. A satrap was a king's representative in a certain uh, geographical region. So there are 120 of these guys. Out of those 120, three men are given the responsibility to oversee them. So 40 men each. There are three of those. One of those three is Daniel. The cream rises to the crop, so to speak. Daniel has this extraordinary spirit. And it says that the king was going to make Daniel the the number one guy in the kingdom. You look at the end of verse 3. It says the king planned to appoint him, that is Daniel, over the entire kingdom. Let's stop there for a second. There are a couple of quick lessons there. First of all, it's easy for us to put our security in things other than God. That's what the Babylonians were doing and they were defeated. They put their faith in something other than God and they had a false security and the result of that is they were defeated. Secondly, what we see happening to Daniel is this is the third time in the book of Daniel, the third time that he finds favor from a king. Two different kingdoms, one's the Babylonians, now we get the Medo-Persians. The first king was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. If you were with us back when we started Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He called in the wise men. He says, I want you to tell me what the dream is, and I want you to interpret the dream. They couldn't do it. Daniel said, I can't, but my God can. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. He interprets a dream for him, and it says the king, Nebuchadnezzar, placed Daniel in a high position, lavished him with many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of his wise men. So king number one is Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel's given a position of honor, given many gifts. Uh, Now Belshazzar becomes king of Babylon. He sees his handwriting on the wall. Many, many tikkun of farsin, and nobody can interpret it. Daniel says, I can't, but my God can, once again. And so Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar, and it says this in Daniel chapter 5 that we saw last week. At Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, the kingly color. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So, so far what we've seen is, here's Daniel. And he, he, he walks with God, he honors God in his life, and because of that, he is a favor of kings. And let me remind you something. Daniel is a Jewish young man who is living in a pagan land working for pagan kings. Remember that. I mean, he's living in a pagan land among non-believers. He's working for a non-believing pagan king, three of them, by the way. And, the, and Daniel does his job so well that he finds favor from these kings. I think the reason Daniel found favor in these kings is because he was honoring God with his life. But you know, as I thought about that, here's a young man 
by the time Daniel 6 comes around, Daniel is in his 80s. Okay, he's been in exile for almost 70 years. Exile's about to end. <clears throat> so sometimes you see pictures of Daniel in the lion's den. You see this young, muscular guy, kind of like me, you know, up there. <laughs> Just kidding. But you, you see Daniel in the lion's den. He's an old guy, like me. Okay? But in his 80s, like my dad, actually. <clears throat> and so he's an old guy. And uh, when he's casting a lion's den, he's not a young guy, he's an older guy. But the one thing I want you to note is under three different kings, Daniel is promoted and finds favor. He's living in a pagan land, working for pagan kings, setting an example of how a true believer should be living his life in front of others. When I typed that in my notes, the verse that came to my mind was Colossians 3.23, which says this. It says, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. You work for the Lord because you're serving him and not earthly masters. Whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord. And the New American Standard says, do you work heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. So here was Daniel living in a pagan land, working for a pagan king, but honoring God with his life. So they took notice and they honored him. The people around him saw what he did, especially those over him. So here's my question for you. You own a business. Are you an example to Christ in the business community? You work for others. Are you an example to Christ in the business community? Maybe you're retired now, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, dad. Do you honor Christ with your life and the things you do? I mean, here was Daniel with an opportunity under these pagan kings to do it, and he lived his life and worked in such a way that he was noticed by them and promoted by them. If we went to talk to people in the workplace about you, what would they say? Went to talk to your professors about the way you're a student, what would they say? If we talked to those who are around you in the neighborhood, what would they say? A few years ago, I ran across, uh, um, I, somebody sent me actually, actual workplace evaluation. So bosses are evaluating people that work for them. Uh, here are some of their comments. Uh, since my last report, this employee has reached rock bottom and shows signs of starting to dig. <laughs> How'd you like your boss to say that about you? Uh, here's another one. He sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. <laughs> uh, here's another one. Um, got into the gene pool while the lifeguard wasn't watching. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty bad. And uh, here's the last one. I would not allow this employee to breed. <laughs> Actual workplace evaluations. Hey, if somebody said uh, about you, what are they like on the job? What are they like in the classroom? What are they like in the neighborhood? What would they say? Daniel found favor because he set an example before those around him as he honored God with his life in the workplace. That doesn't give us an excuse to become workaholics and neglect that which is important. But it does, it does remind us that we should be those who do our work heartily as unto the Lord. A little girl asked her dad why he kept bringing home work from the office night after night. He looked at her and said, because I just can't get it all finished during the day. And she looked at him and said, then why don't they just put you in a slower group? <laughs> I mean, how do, how do we do that? It was said of St. Basil, his words were thunder because his life was lightning. 
Basically, his actions spoke so loud in the way he lived his life that they were willing to listen to his words. Your actions, the cliche, speak louder than your words. Eric Liddell put it this way, the great uh, chariot of fire runner, we are all missionaries, wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to Christ or we repel them from Christ. The people around you every day in the dormitory, in your apartments, in your housing, in, in, your, in the neighborhood, at the job, do they see Jesus alive in you? That's the question. Do they see that? When's the last time you invited somebody to a small group? When's the last time you invited somebody to worship with you? When's the Maybe you're the person that needs to start, the woman who needs to start a Bible study at work with the other ladies working there, or maybe the guy who needs to start in the place where you are. I don't know, but I know this. The way we live every day is either what Liddell says, we're either drawing people to the Savior or repelling them from him. Well, the setting is followed by the setup. And the setup you're familiar with, you look at verse 4, the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. They're jealous. I mean, they're jealous. He's given this position of honor, this position of prestige, this position of prominence, and they can't stand the fact that Daniel is rising above them. Now, we're not sure if these satraps, were they Medo-Persians that uh, Darius brought in with him and put over leadership, or were they Babylonians who were already there, and they now pledge allegiance to Darius and the Medo-Persians? We don't know. <clears throat> but we do know the result is the same. They become jealous. I won't even comment on that since nobody here has an issue with jealousy, envy, or coveting, Right? Really? Your friends in the dorm go out on a date last night and you stay home. Jealous a little bit? Spring break's coming up. Your friends are gone on vacation. You're staying home. Envious? She's lost 25 pounds. You've gained 10. Does it bother you? I mean, it happens to all of us at times, don't we? Their research project is funded. Yours is not. They get the promotion. You don't. Fill in the blank. Go with the scenario. It says this in Proverbs 14.30, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like a cancer in the bones. So do you look at people and envy them or do you look at people and celebrate the victories they have? These people were mad at Daniel. They wanted to get Daniel. In fact, look at what it says. They, they, they looked to find an accusation against him But uh, look at the end of verse 4. But they could not find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. There was no negligence, no corruption to be found in him. Sounds like our presidential candidates right now, doesn't it? Right. Right. Be glad when this political year is over, aren't you? I mean, you look at this and recognize what's going on here. They've got a 60 minutes crew behind Daniel and they look for him. Maybe he skimmed a little bit off the top. Maybe he used his position. Maybe he used his power wrongly and they can't find anything he's guilty of. He is squeaky clean. He's squeaky clean. So they got to do something. What do they do? I mean, what are you going to do? You've got a guy who is a faithful, godly leader, not corrupted by power, not corrupted by position, not corrupted by prominence, so they concoct a conspiracy. The the jealous leaders play up to King Darius. They prey upon Daniel's prayer life. Darius' ego is stroked. They say, let's make you God for a month. That's literally what happens. If you look at uh, verse 6, it says they came to Darius and king live forever. All the commissions, all the kingdoms, all the prefects, all the satraps we've consulted together. And we want to make a statue and enforce an injunction that anyone who plays to any god other than you will be cast in the lion's den. And Darius said, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I'll be king for a month. 
And so the law of the Medes and Persians means it's an irrevocable law once the king signs it into place. So he signs it into place. The whole thing's a setup. These guys are jealous for Daniel because of his promotion above them. And so they recognize the only way, they see there's no corruption in him, no negligence in him. So the only way they can do is to find him guilty of what? Praying. That's it. Because they knew that's what he did. So, if you look at verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 10. I'll get there eventually. When Daniel knew, and I've got that circled in my Bible, when Daniel knew, when he knew the document was signed, when he knew it was law, he entered his house, went on the roof chamber with the windows open towards Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had previously done. Daniel just did what Daniel always did. He trusted God. See, there's a new law in the land. New law in the land says you can't pray to any God except the king. And uh, Daniel goes about business the way that he's always done business. He's going to give praise and thanks to the real God. Now, some people say we should pray three times a day. It says here, Daniel prayed three times a day. We should pray three times a day. I'll tell you what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. Some say we need to face Jerusalem and play like, uh, pray like uh, Islam, Muslims face Mecca and pray. There's nothing magical about the direction in which you pray. Remember, Daniel's in exile. He wants to return to Jerusalem one day. The people want to return to Jerusalem. I think that's why they face Jerusalem. He's praying on his knees. Some people say well, we need to pray on our knees. Uh, the, the, the issue is not the direction you pray. The issue is not the position for you pray. And the issue is your heart when you pray and that you do pray. Ruth Bell Graham said this, the great, when she was alive, uh, Billy Graham's wife, she said, the greatest problem with prayer today is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. The fact that we don't pray. You ever go a day without praying? Maybe a few days without praying? Maybe a couple of weeks without praying? Let's be honest. It happens. I mean, all of a sudden you wake up at the end of the day and say, hey, I can't even talk to God today. If I told you I am madly in love with my wife, which I am, if I told you I can't wait to see her because she's been gone all weekend, which I am, and if I told you we share the same bed every night, which we do and will tonight, but I haven't talked to her in a month, even though we stay in the same house, sleep in the same bed, what would you think? You don't really. You better go see that counselor you send us to, Gary, because you got some issues here, bro. I mean, you live in the same house with your wife, and you sleep in the same bed with your wife, and you go place with your wife, but you don't talk to her. And I, I'm busy. I'm a busy man. I've got things to do. I, I mean, I, I don't have time to talk to my wife. She may call this afternoon when she gets to the airport and tell me she's coming home. But you know, when I'm done here, I'm gonna grab a bite of lunch. Hopefully, go play a little disc golf. Hopefully, rest for a couple of minutes, and then I'll go to the airport and get her. I don't even talk to her. I know her schedule. You don't take a phone call from your wife? No, I know her schedule. I don't talk to her. And you love her? Yeah, I love her deeply. You never talked to her? Not in the last month. You would think you're an idiot. In fact, all of you should stand up and walk out if that were true, which it's not. But yet you've got a father who loves you intensely, who walks with you every step of the way, who goes with you every day, wherever you go, 
who's right by your side, who says, I'll never leave nor desert you. In fact, he says, I loved you so much, I sent my son on your behalf. And then he says, you can depend on me for anything, you can call on me for anything, and yet we don't talk to him. Does that make any sense? I mean, it really doesn't make any sense, does it? All I can conclude from that is we see ourselves as so self-sufficient that we don't feel like we need God to depend upon. Daniel didn't see himself that way. How did he court favor with all these kings? Because he was a man who walked with God, who depended upon God, who loved God. That Dan, all these episodes, Daniel didn't say, hey, I can do it. He said, my God can do it. And he knew his God so well because he spent time in his presence day after day after day after day. And when you know your God, you can have confidence in who he is. And therefore, we function as men and women who honor the Savior. So they make it illegal to pray. Make it illegal to pray. You can only pray to the king, and we know what happens next. We move from the setup to the sentence, and the sentence is, hey, if you don't pray, if you pray to any God except that God, then uh, you're going to be cast in a lion's den. Daniel's guilty. He's guilty. He prays to the God, the true God, the living God, as he always has. So in verse 16, uh, Darius doesn't want to do this, he doesn't, but the, he's deeply distressed in verse 14. In verse 16, the king gave orders. Daniel was brought in. He cast him in the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Don't miss that. If you write in your Bibles, underline Darius' a statement. Darius is a pagan king who believes Daniel's God is so strong, he says, Daniel, you don't have to worry. Your God's got this. Hey, Daniel, your God's got this. Daniel, I, I've got to throw you in the lion's den because the law of the Medes and Persians is irrevocable, and I, I'm caught in a trap, Daniel. I didn't want to do this. He's deeply distressed. In fact, it, it says a little later in verse 18 that the king went off to his palace, spent the night uh, fasting. He couldn't eat, no entertainment. He put the remote down, wouldn't even look at TV, and, and uh, his sleep fled from him. He was an insomniac. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't do anything, and, and he stayed up all night worrying about his confidant, his good friend Daniel. But, but back in verse 16, he said, Daniel, you don't have to worry. Your God's got this. You know, it's interesting to me sometimes that unbelievers and pagans believe great, more, more greatly in the power of our God than we do. I, I mean, he said, Daniel, you don't need to worry. I, I've got to do this. It's a law of the Medes and Persians, zero vocal. I've made a statement. And, and Daniel, it's going to happen. But Daniel, you don't need to worry because your God's got this. I, I, I know the God you constantly serve, and he's got you covered. Sometimes unbelievers believe more in, the, in what God can do than what we do. You remember the story? I've used it several times. It's a story that comes out of Iowa. There was a village in a town in Iowa. They passed, so that, uh, they, they passed an ordinance so that alcohol could be served and they, they could have taverns. So the first tavern was being built. And so all the churches got together and prayed that God would somehow keep that tavern from opening. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, there's a thunderstorm that comes by. And before it opened, it burned the building to the lightning struck and burned the building to the ground. And the tavern was unable to open. Everybody in the churches were happy until, until the tavern owner filed a lawsuit against the churches in the community. I read you. The people of the church were surprised, but pleased until they received notice that would-be tavern owner was suing them. He contended that their prayers were responsible for the burning of the building. The churches denied the charge. Sometimes unbelievers believe in the power of God more than we do. At the conclusion of the preliminary hearing, the judge Riley remarked, at this point, I don't know what my decision will be, but it seems to me that the tavern owner believes in the power of prayer more than the church people do in our community. 
He said, Dan, you don't have to fret. Your God's got this. So the sentence is handed down, and uh, you know what happens next. The suspense is building. The king can't sleep. He gets up first thing in the morning. He goes down in a troubled voice. It says in verse 20, he cries out to Daniel. Daniel, has uh, servant of the living God, notice what he calls God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said, O king, live forever and get me out of here before these lions get hungry. Not exactly what he said, but he said, uh, oh, king, live forever. That's what I would have said. King, get me out of here before these lions want breakfast. But Daniel goes on and he preaches and he says, hey, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they've not harmed me in as much as I've been found innocent before him and also towards you. I've committed no crime. And the king was very pleased. He gave orders for Daniel to be taken up. And then in verse 24, he gave orders once again that the men who maliciously accused Daniel would be cast into the lion's den along with their children and their wives. Does that not bother you? And the lions overpowered them and crushed them. I mean, you see the revenge set on Darius's heart. Well, the suspense is followed by the surprise. The surprise is what Darius does. He makes an ordinance. He says, I've been king for a month, but I don't need to be king because there's a true king, and that true king is Daniel's God. Verse 26, fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He's the living God, the enduring. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He performs signs and wonders. And then in verse 28, Daniel once again is successful and famous. Why is this here? I mean, it's a great story for kids in a Sunday school class, and it's pretty intriguing as we listen to it. And why is it here? Because I believe it shows that our all-powerful God delivers us from sin and situations. He's got the power to do anything. I mean, he's got the power to do anything. In fact, when you look at verse 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with a signet ring and with the signet ring of nobles. There was another time when a stone was rolled in front of an opening and that tomb was sealed as well and a place of death became a place of life. That's Jesus, our savior. And God's in the business of doing that. This place of death, the lion's den, was a place of life the next morning because Daniel's more alive the next morning than he was the day before. And, and there's a tomb in Jerusalem where we see a stone rolled in front of it, a seal being placed over it, and that which is death became life. God's in the business of bringing life out of death. Some of you in dead marriages, you're in a lion's den right now. God can take a 15, 20-year dead marriage and give life to it. Some of you have broken friendships and relationships that are dead. God can bring life to those relationships. Some of you have spiritual passions that have died a long time ago. God's in the business of bringing life out of dead stuff. He can resurrect anything. We say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let me give you three quick lessons and we'll go home. Number one, sometimes holy living, may, holy living may bring about persecution. The reason Daniel was persecuted is because he was praying. That's why he's persecuted. Sometimes when you live a holy life, you're going to be persecuted. I don't like that. You don't like that. But that's the reality. Jesus says in John chapter 15, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Peter in 1 Peter 4 puts it this way, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you as something strange that's happening to you. Rejoice that you can participate in the sufferings of Christ. He goes on and says, if you're insulted for the name of Jesus, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. When you are persecuted for holy living and make sure it's holy living, you're persecuted for you're a blessed man or woman. 
This is a guy named Sadhu Singh, S-A-N-D-U-S-I-N-G-H. Sadhu Singh heard the gospel when he was uh, just in his late teens. He was from a Sikh, a wealthy Sikh family in Punjab, India. When he trusted Christ, his family tried to poison him to death. They didn't succeed. He was kicked out of the house because he dishonored his family by turning from Hinduism to Jesus. He was kicked out of his house by his father. Several months after his salvation, he was already preaching. He went back near the village that he was born in. And I read to you his writings. By the way, if you Google up Sandhu, S-A-N-D-U, Singh, S-I-N-G-H, you'll find a number of books either written about him or by him about his faith in the Savior. He goes back to near the village that he was born in to preach. He decided he would go and visit his family and told him never to come back. He said, at first my father refused to see me or even let me in the house because I had dishonored the family by my faith. But after a little while, he came out and said to me, very well, you can stay here tonight, but you must get out early in the morning before my, sins, before my friends see you and never show your face here again. You're no longer my son. He said, I remained silent that night. My family had me sit not at the family table, but at a distance. What I remember is our servant brought me food and my father, began to, my father brought me water. But instead of pouring it into my cup, he poured it on my head. As my father did that, my heart was broken. I could not control the tears. I could not restrain the tears from flowing from my eyes. That moment, the fullness of the Spirit was over me. And my God said, you can have peace. I decided it would be best for me not to spend the night with my family that night, so I slept under a tree. Then I continued on my way the next morning. It was several months before I saw my family again. But I recognized it was worth it because of my Savior. Sometimes holy living brings about persecution. Now the good news about this story, if you read about Sandu Singh's life, several years later his father came to faith. And he became a preacher of the gospel. It doesn't always happen that way though. See if you kept up with what happened with ISIL in the Middle East, the first group of people that were beheaded, 11 men, one of them was a father and son father and son from Europe, who were there for the sake of the gospel. And they trusted God and they prayed. They honored God with their life, that's why they were there. But today they're in glory. Even though Daniel trusted God and he was spared, sometimes holy living does not mean that we escape the sword. Second lesson, sometimes we're delivered from the lion's den. Some of you are saying, lion's den? I'm living the dream. Everything's good. And I'd say, just wait. Because James 1 says, trials are going to come your way eventually. But sometimes, really, we're delivered from the lion's den. Sometimes life is smooth. And we recognize in the midst of that we're not in the lion's den. But sometimes we're delivered through the lion's den. We're like Daniel. Man, we're taken right through that lion's den. We go right through it, and God walks us in the midst of it. We're like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. God is there protecting us, but we're gone through the trials. The cancer comes, the divorce comes, the disease comes, the depression comes, but God walks us through it. Sometimes we're delivered by the lion's den. What I mean by that is sometimes we're delivered to glory. Sometimes heads are lopped off. 
Sometimes a disease comes back and people die. But here's the good news. In the midst of that, your father never leaves nor deserts you. I remind you of what he says in Habakkuk, what Habakkuk the prophet says. Some of my favorite verses in the scriptures. He says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit in the vine, though the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in my Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. He's good regardless of which of these scenarios take place. We just can't say God's good when things go well. God's good when we're called to glory. God's good in the midst of the trials. God's good if he takes us around the trials. And finally, there are two lions mentioned in the scriptures. Satan is a lion. It says in 1 Peter 5, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but there's a greater lion. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. There's the triumphal lion, that's Jesus, the Savior. So here's what I would say. When attacked by Satan, the roaring lion, turn to Jesus, the lion of Judah. You're going through the trial, the line of Judah's there. You're taking around the trial, the line of Judah. You're taking the glory, the line of the triumphant lion of Judah is always there. So next time you see that lion on National Geographic or Discovery Channel, you remember there are two lions out there. Satan trying to devour, but the triumphant lion of Judah sent by a father who loved you so much that he gave his son so you could have eternal life and abundant life today and forevermore. Amen? Amen. You're a good God. Sometimes we're delivered from the lion's den. Sometimes we're thrown in the midst of the lion's den and sometimes we're devoured by the lions. You're still a good God. And in your goodness, we worship you. Not just this day, but every day. If you're here today and you're not sure if Jesus is your Savior, I pray you wouldn't leave this building without that certainty. You can talk to him right now. That's what prayer is. You can confess your need for a Savior, your need for forgiveness of sin. And Some of you in the midst of the lion's den right now. Things in your family aren't as they should be. Things in your marriage are not as they should be. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's physical things, maybe it's finances, maybe it's health. I'm here to proclaim what the scriptures proclaim, that he's a good God who should be praised all the time and will walk with you through everything. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a great week.